You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 3 verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, we desperately need to hear your voice, not the voice of a man. We need to hear your voice, O Lord. And we pray, Father, that as we study your word, that, Father, you would truly speak to us, and it would be your lovely voice that we hear. Come to us, O Father, we pray. Comfort us in Jesus' name. Amen. In our culture, everywhere we turn, we are basically told and we constantly hear that uh, we're all basically good. All we need is a little bit of education and the proper environment. Uh, some of you are smiling at that notion. Uh, I, I understand that. Uh, uh, we may think of ourselves as we hear that, if we're all basically good, how do we explain the wickedness, immorality, and godlessness that is everywhere? Uh, someone might chime in and say, well, Rick, that's easy. That's one of the easiest questions you've asked in some time. It's, it's, it's not because of us, it's because of the other guy. And how prone we are to say such things we probably wouldn't say it as crassly as that but uh, we do have a tendency to think things of of that nature don't we and uh, as I said last week Paul is a skilled evangelist I mean he realizes that we judge others with a different standard than we judge ourselves and that's why in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 clear through chapter 3 and verse 20 Paul will spend 64 verses disputing this 64 verses, if my count's correct. That is a lot of biblical real estate. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, maybe you've heard me say this a couple of times, but when God inspires the biblical author, he does so with a certain economy of words. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Sometimes I'm actually amazed as I read the stories and as I read uh, the scripture, how much is said with so few words. You know, the biblical authors, they're not under some contract with a publisher that says, okay, we we want five books out of you over the next five years and each book needs to be 30,000 words. So, okay, if if all that you have to say can be done in 17,000 words, then you need to put in another 16,000 words of fluff. And we've all read books like that, haven't we? You know when you've gotten to the fluff. It's a waste of the reader's time, isn't it? You won't find any fluff in God's word. 
there's no need for it. All that having been said, the Apostle Paul invests 64 verses. 64 verses. And what has he been saying? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And again, I, I want to remind myself and remind you as well that when Paul writes, he is writing indeed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not just the words of a man uh, uh, mangering around or whatever the, the best word for that would be. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that as fallen sinners, we have an inexcusably, we, we've, we've inexcusably rebelled against him. Uh, we're without excuse. Uh, we might put it this way. I mean, we have not studied the Bible to see how we could live lives pleasing to God in our unbelief uh, as a culture. Uh, in fact, as a culture, we have lived in varying degrees of sin for all practical purposes, uh, walking along as if God doesn't exist. And some of us who have, been, uh, who have been converted in adult life can remember quite well doing that, um, living as if God doesn't exist. And even after conversion, how often do we veer to the left and to the right and find ourselves in seasons where we're living, practically speaking, as if God doesn't exist? Maybe paying lip service to him once in a while. 64 verses, Paul shows that all humanity has done this. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, we saw that he indicts the immoral. And when we turn to the pages of chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he indicts the moralizer. And then in verses 6 through 11, we saw that Paul gives us the, uh, some words concerning the nature of God's judgment. How will God judge? He's going to judge according to the words we have spoken, the thoughts we've entertained, and the things that we have done. And then he turns to chapter, or chapter 2, he turns to verse 12 through 16, and there he addresses those who have uh, never seen a Bible or never heard the gospel. Surely, as I spent some time talking about last week, surely they would be without excuse. Hey, I never had no Bible. I never heard the gospel. I don't know who Jesus is. Well, we saw that they're without excuse because God has given each one of us a conscience. And we haven't even obeyed our conscience, have we? We do things that our conscience tells us not to do, and we do them anyway. Verses 17 to 24 make it clear that self-reliance upon the law would never produce the righteousness required to enter life. And verses 25 to 29 make it clear that simply being circumcised would not suffice. You know, I made an application there. I'll just review. You know, I applied that to confirmation and baptism. You know, baptism and circumcision are covenant signs. In a couple of weeks, I'll, I'll readdress that. We'll talk about that again. They're covenant signs, but they're covenant signs of salvation. Without righteousness, the covenant sign doesn't signify salvation without righteousness. It signifies judgment. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 25, what's Paul say? He says, for circumcision is indeed of value. We could apply that to baptism too. Baptism is indeed of value. If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Becomes a, a sign of judgment. It's a sign of salvation for the one who has faith. It's a sign of judgment for the one who does not. If it was just so easy as to just run around baptizing everybody, we could get that done. I mean, I, I likened it to a vaccine last week. I mean, we, we really could get everybody baptized if that's all we needed to do. We would have already done it. 
Drawing verses from the Old Testament, Paul demonstrates in Romans 3 and verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. And for those of you who are sharing your faith very actively, this would be a good verse to memorize if you haven't already. It's an easy one to memorize. Memorize where it comes from. Memorize Romans 3 and verse 10 so that you can say, well, listen, Romans 3 and verse 10 says there's no one who's righteous, not even one. And why is that so helpful? Because that verse will not permit us to point to the other guy. When it says there is no one who is righteous, it includes us, doesn't it? And when I'm sharing this verse, this verse is hard enough to share with people as it is. I find that it's, it's, it's digested a little easier whenever it's applied to myself first. I'll say, listen, I live under the indictment of Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous. There's no one who does good. And you know what? That applies to me. And I know it applies to you because it applies to all of us. That's the way I share it. Uh, just a suggestion. Because we don't want to be sounding like it only applies to them and it doesn't apply to us. Well, the news here is black, isn't it? The entire race has fallen and become the object of God's wrath. Now I can hear what someone's saying. I mean, someone might be listening to this sermon later and say, well, you know, Rick, it sounds like you, it sounds like you believe that all unbelievers are the object of God's wrath. I mean, as I listen to you talk, it sounds like what you're saying is all unbelievers are the object of God's wrath. And I would to that say, you're, you're understanding me correctly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here's another verse to memorize. Uh, write it down. John 3.36, if you haven't memorized it already. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. Notice the wrath of God remains it doesn't say that the wrath of God now applies. It's saying that the wrath of God has never been taken away. That it was always there from the start. John 3.16 is up on the billboard, although I don't see it as much anymore as we used to. We used to see John 3.16 on billboards all the time, didn't we? John 3.16 makes it up on the billboard, and that's great. John 3.36 not going to make it up on the billboard. That one's not going to make it up there. But it's just as important. And listen to, what, listen to the play on the words in this. You don't have it in front of you, but listen. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We see that believing and obeying are in parallel here. Believing and obeying. Believing in a saving way involves obeying. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a later message. But back to Paul. For 64 verses, Paul's delivered the darkest of news. In our text this morning, Paul somewhat summarizes these verses by saying at the end of verse 22, if you go back to Romans 3, verse 22, you see at the very end of verse 22 where it says, where Paul says there is no distinction. Do you see that? There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
That's another good verse to memorize. These aren't that hard to memorize. Don't be intimidated by it. You'll, you'll, you'll find it quite easy to memorize these. Remember, memorize where they come from too so that you can open your Bible and point to them. These are very useful. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the message stopped right here, there would be no hope. What we're learning here is in order to get to heaven, we have to be righteous. And what we're learning here is left to ourselves. We simply do not have the righteousness that's required to get in. And it is a testimony to our blindness that we can be so trivial about things like this, isn't it? We act like this isn't a problem. <laughs> this is a big problem. It's the hardest thing, I think, for us to come to grips with because we constantly tell ourselves, I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad. Am I that bad? I'm not that bad. I hope I'm not that bad. But the message is clear. Left to ourselves, we cannot enter the kingdom. In my, in my notes here, I have the word cannot with capital letters. I think I'll leave it like that. Paul has removed any, any notion that we can. After 64 verses of darkness, we come to the paragraph that we come to this morning. Dr. Leon Morris once described our text as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. In fact, uh, currently the sermon, the title that I have for the sermon is the greatest paragraph. The greatest paragraph. I mean, this paragraph takes us right into the very heart and soul of the gospel. In fact, the text that we come to this morning is the paragraph that uh, Paul will use to write the, very, the, the rest of the letter. Let me put it another way that might be clearer. The rest of the letter to the Romans is an expansion and an application of the paragraph that we've come to this morning, namely chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. It is the greatest of paragraphs. For 64 verses, Paul's made it clear we do not have the righteousness required to get into heaven. And then along comes verse 21 in the two words, but now. Two, two words that might be relatively inconsequential in any other setting, but... Do you feel the force of that? After 64 verses. We come to the words, but now. These words prepare us for the great news. What is the news? Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, Chapter 3, verse 21 to 26 is very dense, isn't it? You can read that a lot. And, and uh, someone might think if you're new to it, especially you're reading it and you're thinking, okay, you say it's the greatest paragraph. I don't even understand what it says. Don't feel bad. It takes a little while to sort this out. It's so dense. There's a couple of questions that arise here. I mean, what Paul is saying is the good news is that the righteousness of God has been manifested or the righteousness of God has been made known. Okay, first, what is the righteousness of God? What does Paul mean by that? And secondly, how has the righteousness of God been made known? I think if we take the second question, um, 
when we answer the second question, we shed a lot of light on the first question. So let's, let's look at the second question first. Uh, in other words, how has the righteousness of God been made known? If you look at verse 22, you'll see that the righteousness of God there is connected with faith in Jesus Christ. And if you go down to verses 24 and 25, you'll see that fleshed out further. Namely, that it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, uh, of course, Paul here is pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus. That's pretty much clear to us, right? Okay. Well, you'll notice that Paul's introducing two terms here. He's introducing the term redemption and propitiation. Now, uh, these two terms are essential in our understanding of the gospel. So, they might be new to some of you. Some of you may have a good handle on them. I don't know. But if we don't understand these words, we, we don't really understand the gospel. They're that important. Let's start with the first, redemption. The, the Greek word that is translated by the English word redemption means deliverance. It means deliverance. We might think of it as deliverance. In its verb, verbal form, it means to set free, to liberate, to deliver, if you will. Uh, one lexicon says that it means to set free with the implied analogy uh, to, pr- to the process of freeing a slave. To the process of freeing a slave. Um, Tammy and I got a, an opportunity a number of years ago up in, I think it was in Cayuga County up in uh, Ohio, to uh, participate in a slave reenactment, uh, which really, uh, uh, it was kind of neat. There was uh, professional actors and actresses that were involved in and, uh, you know, you signed up and then uh, you, the first, the first uh, uh, step was we were brought to an auction. Me and Tammy are standing together and this auction takes place. And, and of course, she got auctioned off a lot quicker than I did. Uh, someone scarfed her right up, uh, kind of left me alone there for a while. But it really, um, it really it, it, you know, it really kind of um, uh, helped you to understand uh, as they, it was so real. I mean, they did such a good job. I mean, she was taken away. And uh, we were all separated. And then um, they had other stages where they were coming in and they were coming in the room and, and we heard someone screaming and they're like, what's the screaming going on? Well, there's, someone's being sexually assaulted in the other room. I mean, it was really graphic, you know. And really kind of uh, put to stage, well, what would it be like to be separated from your loved ones? To be put into slavery. I think in terms of the scriptures, the, the best illustration that we have here is God's deliverance of Israel. You know, in, in the famous song of Moses, Moses, you know, in, in Exodus chapter 15, which is after Israel's delivered out of uh, Egypt, uh, Moses writes the song, and in verse 13, he says that you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You have guided them by your strength to the holy abode. Israel was literally, they were literally enslaved to Pharaoh. Uh, When they woke up in the morning, they weren't free to do whatever they wanted to do. When they woke up in the morning, they were free to do one thing, make bricks. What are you going to do tomorrow? I'm going to make bricks. What are you doing this weekend? I'm making bricks. What are you doing next week? I'm making bricks. There's this quota that we have to meet. That's all we do is make bricks. 
And sometimes the quotas are just barely what we can pull off. And if we don't get that quota made, it's bad news for us. And that's what their life is. That's a life of making bricks. And if they don't make the appropriate quota of bricks, well, then things don't go very well for them at all. Now, uh, they could not get away. Uh, God intervened and he redeemed them. That is, he delivered them from this enslavement. Now, we might not be able to relate to this. I mean, we hear these stories over and over again, but we've never been in, we've never been in Egypt making bricks. And for that matter, we've, we, we may go to a reenactment, uh, uh, but it's just a reenactment, you know. Uh, we, we've, never, we've never really, I think, had that experience. But let's bring this into contemporary terms. I think the most relevant application of this is the rampant drug addiction going on today. I mean, it's not... The, it, the, there, there isn't a week that goes by, uh, especially at the courthouse. How many weeks go by where we don't hear of someone overdosing or multiple overdoses? And we don't hear about all of them that are going on. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, the word addicted only appears one time, which has led many to believe that the Bible doesn't really speak about addiction. Well, we're going to see that that's, that's false. I mean, in 1 Timothy 3.8, in the ESV, we read these words, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Now, the Greek word that is translated here with the word addicted uh, means to be addicted to something, nothing like stating the obvious. Um, but uh, listen to the other shades of meaning of this word. It means to pay close attention to, which when this word is used in the New Testament, that is most often the the meaning, the context, is to pay close attention to, to hold on to. But listen to these. To give oneself to. To give oneself to. To be devoted to. To serve. It sounds like worship, doesn't it? That's because that's what it is. It's worship. If this afternoon, if you sit down with Exodus and you read chapters, I don't know, start around six somewhere and read through 14, you will notice that Moses is instructed by God to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the Israelites go so that they may come out and worship him. Because they're currently not free to do so. Pharaoh won't let them. They're not free to do it. They're not free to serve Almighty. They have to, Almighty God, they have to make bricks. And this is illustrative of the human condition. In our unbelief, we're not free to worship God. We think, oh, you know, one of these days, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get around to it. No, you, <laughs> maybe, currently, you're not free to do it if you're in unbelief. Because you're given to another. It's not a worship issue. It's not that one of these days I'll start worshiping. That's not the issue. You already worship. We have been so created and so wired to worship that that is what we do. The issue isn't. You don't, you don't need to encourage anyone to worship because everybody's got that down. Everybody's busy doing that. Everybody is worshiping. The problem is we're worshiping the wrong stuff. That is the problem. 
In our unbelief, we're not free to worship God any more than the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt. We're not enslaved to Pharaoh, we're enslaved to self, sin, the world, the flesh, the evil one. And this enslavement is expressed in all kinds of ways, notwithstanding addiction. Addiction is an expression of that. It's interesting that if we listen to Titus 2 and verse 3, older women likewise are to be revenant behavior, not slanders, and listen to this last, uh, or slaves to much wine. Sounds like the earlier verse, doesn't it? In 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, Paul says, not addicted to much wine. In Titus 2 and verse 3, Paul says, or slaves to much wine. And that's because the Bible doesn't choose to use the word addicted when it speaks about addiction. It uses the word slavery. It uses the word slavery. And once you make that discovery, you'll find out that the Bible has an enormous amount of material uh, for addiction. The word slavery is used in its place. Slaves will be enslaved until someone redeems them. Israel would still be in Egypt if it had not been God's redemption of them. So when Paul speaks about the redemption that is in Christ, he's speaking about our delivery from the enslavement to self, to the flesh, to the world, uh, to the evil one. You and I, we're born into this slavery. And the good news of the gospel is that through faith we can be redeemed. Uh, redemption has to take place. Redemption is what sets us free. And when Christ sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's our first term, uh, redemption. The second term is propitiation. What does that mean? What does it mean uh, to be propitiated? I remember being in, in uh, uh, I think it was in seminary, maybe my first six months, six, first semester in seminary. I remember hearing one of the seniors talk about uh, his uh, presbytery exam. And he said, one of the things I got wrong was I, I, you know, I got expiation and propitiation confused. And I thought, you know, uh, I don't know that I would want to try to answer either of those things right now. But one thing I know is that I'm going to get them both sorted out because it sounds like that could be a potential question. You know, going to seminary is a lot like going to nursing school. You've got this bar exam coming down the pike and it's on your shoulders the whole time. Uh, propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It means to appease anger that's what it means to appease anger now a lot of people have trouble with this because they have concluded that God doesn't get angry I'm being serious and the logic behind it is listen God God doesn't get angry I mean for him to get angry and and judge and be and be wrathful that is that is to suggest that he has some kind of bad temper and, and, and self-control problem. And before we get too hard on any of these folks, I mean, let's, let's apply this to ourselves. I mean, let's think about how sometimes we can be so flippant about personal sin in our lives. I mean, am I the only one that can do that from time to time? I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm in good company. Could it be possible that undergirding that behavior is a belief, even if it's a subconscious belief, but a belief nevertheless that God's not angered by this? 
I think one of the ways to stop it is to continually remind ourselves that certain things are displeasing to God and God gets, he, he does get angry. I mean, let's remember what we've learned. We go back to Romans 1 and verse 18. If you look back there with me, Paul said what? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Is it, is it revealed against some ungodliness and some unrighteousness? No, it's revealed against all of it. And then if you turn to chapter 2 in verse 5, now, Paul speaks about the hard and impenitent heart storing up what? Storing up wrath on the day of what? On the day of wrath. The, the Greek word that is translated wrath in these verses, make no mistake, it, God's wrath is his divine displeasure and anger over sin. That's what it is. Now, with our friends that don't believe God gets angry, I don't want to suggest that God is a bad-tempered God who has a self-control and anger management issue. Uh, no, we need to understand that God is merciful and he's kind in the psalm we read this morning. He's slow to anger. He's merciful, he's kind. But he does get angry. Evil makes him angry. So we have two problems here. Our, our sinful rebellion against God has left us unrighteous. We do not have the righteousness that's required to get into heaven left to ourselves. And secondly, our unrighteousness has made God very angry. He must be propitiated. There must be some kind of appeasement. Otherwise, the wrath remains. Now, uh, this sermon, at this moment, I'm very mindful. It's kind of like the toy that you buy at uh, Christmas time for little junior and it, it has this in real small print on the box assembly required you know and you dump the thing out on the living room floor and there's so many pieces it doesn't even look like the picture on the box this sermon is kind of like that right now I'm afraid I've got pieces laying all over the place all over the floor here let's start putting them together what what is going on here uh, how does Christ's crucifixion on the cross reveal God's righteousness the key to understanding this is found in verse 25 namely in the words if you look at verse 25 with me Paul says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins do you see that has everybody found that This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What's that all about? God had offered forgiveness to the saints and the believers of the Old Testament. He had offered forgiveness to them and in doing so the penalty of their sins had not yet been carried out. Right? He would offered forgiveness but the penalty had not been carried out. Now reason with me here. You've heard me say this many times. God is a God of perfect justice, right? He's a God of perfect justice. So how can a God of perfect justice forgive sins without carrying out any punishment for those sins? This is not a trick question. How can a God of perfect justice forgive sins without carrying out the penalty for those sins? How can he do that? It's not a trick question. He can't. He can't do that. 
The answer is simple, he can't. If no punishment is ever administered, then God's justice become, com, becomes compromised. Why? Because people are getting away with stuff. They're getting away with stuff. And if they're getting away with stuff, then his justice is compromised. So by passing over sins, God appears, he appears to the one who's thinking this through, he appears to be unjust. Back to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. How? By the crucifixion of Jesus. How does the crucifixion of Jesus make righteousness known? Because the penalty of sins that God had passed over has now been carried out in Christ Jesus. The sins of Abraham, the sins of Moses, the sins of Job, the sins of Samuel, the sins of Daniel, the sins of all the faithful, their sins were put on Christ Jesus. And he was punished in their place. Now if you look at verse 26, you'll see another dimension to this. Not only is the crucifixion of Christ made known God's righteousness by carrying out the penalty for former sins. Look at verse 26. The crucifixion demonstrates God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he might be just and the justifier. Uh, so the crucifixion of Jesus also makes known the righteousness of God in the present as well. You see, nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with it. And by the way, I, I almost called this sermon, uh, God is just and justifier. I was toying around with that title too. I don't know what you think of that title. Um, but the crucifixion of Jesus also reveals God's righteousness. I mean, nobody's getting away with anything. Now, so God can be both just and justifier of the one who has faith. Here's a quote for you. It might be hard for you to grasp it. I'll put it in different words later, but I put it in here because I'll, I'll, I'll get this all cleaned up and presentable and it'll be laying on the back table with the other sermons for you if you're interested in looking at it closer. But Professor Cranfield, he shares these helpful words. He said, quote, God purposed Jesus Christ to be a propitiatory sacrifice. That is, he's a sacrifice that appeases his anger, right? In order that he might justify sinners righteously. For God to have forgiven their sin lightly would have been to have compromised with the lie that moral evil does not matter and so to have violated his own truth and mocked men with an empty lying reassurance which at their most human they, would, they must have recognized a squalid, a squalid falsehood which it would have been. Okay, that might be hard for you to grasp me reading that and you're listening to it. Let me put it in other words. We could put it this way. The wages of sin is death. Right? That's Romans 6.23. Therefore, the only way to appease God's wrath is death. Furthermore, the only way to purge our unrighteousness is by death. So any other effort than that would have been a mockery. It, it would have been an, effort, uh, an absolute mockery. But Christ's death and God's righteousness is demonstrated, it's vindicated, and it's magnified before the whole world. In other words, sinners are justified righteously. And I think that might be a good title for this sermon. Justified righteously. 
What's the implications of that? The implications of that is it stops all accusation. I'm not just justified in Christ Jesus through faith. I am justified righteously because God is both just and justifier. I didn't make much about it. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, there, Paul fields some objections. We haven't really looked at that material. We kind of skipped it over. I don't want you, anyone to think I'm ignoring those passages. We're going to get to them as we go along. But let, let me just say this. Opponents of the gospel are, are, are confused. And this idea of justification by faith, what do you mean justification by faith? That, that's, that's unlawful. God couldn't possibly be just that way. No, God is just this way. The rest of the letter is going to flesh that out. If your faith is in Christ Jesus this morning, you're not only justified, you're justified righteously. It'll stand up to the accusations of Satan himself. Hmm, 64 verses. 64 verses that inform us of what a mess we have We don't have the righteousness necessary to be able to stand in God's presence and enter his heaven. And God's wrath is upon us. But now, you hear how beautiful those words are. But now, you see, if you skip the 64 verses, but now don't sound so beautiful, do they? But having plowed through those 64 verses, but now, see how beautiful they are? But now, by way of the crucifixion of Jesus, a righteousness is foreign to us. A righteousness of God is made available to us by faith. By faith, we grasp it. By faith, we take a hold of it. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go through Paul's letter. But for now, what is faith's role in this? Faith's role in this is to take it. Faith's role in this is to have it. Faith's role in this is to possess it. So our first problem is solved. Now we have the righteousness. By faith, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We have the righteousness now to get in. What about the wrath? What do we do about that? Well, Jesus is a perfect propitiatory sacrifice. He makes propitiation. He appeases God's wrath. How does he do it? He pushes you away. He pushes you aside. He says, you can't do this. I've come to do this for you in your place. And he stands and takes his own, his very own wrath upon himself to spare us. And the wrath is appeased. The wrath is appeased. Sometimes it's said this way, God saves us from himself. If your faith is in Christ, I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your past looks like. I could care less because you are justified righteously. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. And that kills all the accusations against you. 64 verses. What a mess. But now. I would make that as a title too, but I don't think it's enough. But now. Which title do you like the best? I can't make up my mind, but I think the one I like the best is this one. You tell me what you think. Justified righteously.
I like that one the best. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And by faith, you and I are justified righteously. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a great salvation we come to this morning, Father. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of salvation to all who believe. For those who believe by faith, we are truly justified and justified righteously, oh Father. What a great paragraph, the greatest of paragraphs. Father, what a great paragraph we come to this morning. You are both just and justifier of the ungodly. And as we put our faith and our trust in you, you are truly, you are truly, your righteousness is made known to all, for we are truly justified righteously. We thank you and praise you for this, O Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.